The all-new Hyundai 2024 Santa Fe is equipped with everything you need to break free from the dull work week and embark on an adventurous weekend with your family. The all-new Hyundai Santa Fe's features ensure that you can take on any adventure. What kind of features? Well, how about the available H-Track all-wheel drive so you can take on the dirt trails and kick up some mud? Or the standard third-row seating so your whole family can experience the thrill together? How about available dual wireless charging pads so no one gets stuck in the great outdoors with a dead phone? We're always trying to think about those great spring and summer getaways, but with a car like the Hyundai Santa Fe, anywhere can be your next adventure. To learn more about the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe, go to HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for complete details. Learn more about the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe at HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for complete details. Welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast with your hosts, Chip Patterson, Tom Fernelli, Danny Cannell, and Bud Elliott. It's your call for the best college football coverage from National Signing Day to the National Championship and everything in between. CBS Sports presents the Cover 3 Podcast. And welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast here on CBS Sports. That's Bud Elliott. That's Tom Finelli. I'm Chip Patterson. It's Indie Day, baby. Group of five, Independence. We've highlighted a, a few of uh, the interesting programs from around the country that to highlight in a spring gleaning episode, spread the love around. You know, we don't only focus on uh, the power five and we certainly don't only focus on the top 25. I mean, heck we're digging deep down into uh, some of these conferences. So uh, here's what we got on deck. Uh, we will hit Notre Dame, Cincinnati, BYU, Louisiana, Memphis, UCF, Boise State, and Houston. Yes, I hear you. App State, Tulsa, Coastal Carolina. Like we just we had to make a cutoff. And so, uh, if you're very very passionate and you would like a spring gleaning segment for your school, and it's not here, leave it in the reviews, baby. Five star, leave a review, then put in your uh, spring gleaning request, and we'll continue doing that in mailbag episodes. If you have not gotten a chance to hear, and again. In the feed, you can go and find them. We've already hit the ACC, the SEC, the Big Ten, the Big 12, the Pac-12. And if your favorite team has not had a spring gleaning segment and you would like it, throw it in. We'll make a whole mailbag segment out of it to make sure that uh, that you get what you need. Gentlemen, shall we begin with uh, the Fighting Irish? Okay. Is that good? Uh, good. All right. Uh, quick, quick clarification. As always, I'm I'm going to turn to Bud Elliott. I'm sorry to put you on the spot here. Um, are we Buckner? Tyler yeah. Buckner. Buckner. Yeah. Okay. This is see. This is a good time for me to make sure that I get all all of my pronunciation down because I do a lot of reading. Got to admit, I'm not not always. Uh, I'm not always looking up the YouTube's, and obviously, I'm I'm not uh, in charge of talking to these guys or so. But uh, the reason I mention his name, if you are not familiar, he is a very highly rated true freshman quarterback that Notre Dame not only has, but has on campus for the spring. 
But that's not all when it comes to replacing Ian Book because we've got former Wisconsin quarterback Jack Cohn. So we've got uh, the the elder statesman, the uh, the graduate transfer on campus for spring, and we've got Tyler Buckner, the young buck, coming in, early enrollee, and all spring long, who's getting how many reps? Back and forth, back and forth. Uh, that will be something that a lot of people are interested in. I'm not as interested in that, but of course I recognize the significance, especially giving um, us being a little bit of a like Jack Cohn fan podcast, at least going into last season where we thought that before his injury, he could be someone that was very effective based on his 2019 performance. And then of, of course, recognizing Buckner's ceiling uh, elsewhere that I'm looking at. So Notre Dame has become an offensive line factory. You lose all Americans. You still got Jarrett Patterson. I mean, he's, he can play at an all American level, but the questions that I have for that offensive staff are going to be how they shuffle those pieces around because there's a lot of uh, intriguing talent. Again, we have done a great job at that position at Notre Dame. What are the pieces going to look like? Uh, I don't have any single players that I'm looking at to uh, necessarily slide into certain spots, but there does appear to be some uncertainty as to who the five is, what positions they are in. But again, it sure seems like uh, Cousin Jarrett will be uh, that sort of All-American player there. Big staff hire, Marcus Freeman, one of the top defensive coordinators in the entire country. He's brought over by Brian Kelly from Cincinnati. Offensively, uh, outside of quarterback, you know, still got Kyron Williams, still got Chris Tyree, still got Michael Mayer. Like the idea that we're running with like running backs and tight ends and trying to build from sort of the inside out rather than the outside in, that sure seems to be the case. But there is an absence of outside playmakers. I'm not expecting it, at least not to see it this spring, but if we're going to talk about overall success and uh, how Notre Dame stacks up against uh, its peers at the top of the country, certainly something that you would like to see as a Notre Dame fan. So for the Fighting Irish, they are back to their independent ways, uh, ACC schedule. Thanks. Enjoyed it. Made it to the ACC title game. Took down Clemson, but, uh, but, but now we're going to open things up again. How, how are we feeling about the Fighting Irish, and, and where are, are our eyes and ears uh, for spring practice? I think this is a really interesting season for Notre Dame, especially with what we've seen it the program doing in the last few years with its recruiting and how it's stepped up. Because we, we've seen in the past in the Brian Kelly era that they had great seasons, and then they would have kind of like a reset year or maybe sometimes even two. And then they would get back to being like 10 wins. Like they had the, you know, they went to the national title game in 2012. They won nine games, I think in 2013. Then they had an eight and five season. Then they jumped back up to 10. Then they dropped a four and eight. And ever since then they've had, you know, four straight 10 win seasons at least. But like, if you, we look at the returning production rankings, like you mentioned all the stuff that they lose. Ian book, obviously is a big part of that, but in Connolly's returning production rankings, they're 123rd nationally. Like they lost a lot from that team last year at a lot of key spots and it's in, there's a lot to replace obviously the qb competition is huge but i want to see because like this is something we talked about <clears throat> the last couple of years about how they've stepped up on the recruiting to kind of become more of a program that could compete with the elite to get to the college football playoff and maybe win some games and maybe win a national title so if you're truly at that point 
if the way you've been recruiting to get to that point, I feel like this is our first litmus test of how successful Notre Dame's new approach and plan has been, because if they can replace everything that they lose from that team last season and still come out and know they're not playing an ACC schedule this year, but they're still playing a pretty difficult schedule and win 10 games and 11 games and be in the playoff picture. I think that's huge, but that's, that's more of a macro look at it. Micro level, I was high on Jack Cohn at Wisconsin. I thought he was better than I thought he was capable of doing more than Wisconsin asked. But I I also kind of looked at that from the context of Wisconsin, of being a Wisconsin quarterback of what you're asked to do at Wisconsin. At Notre Dame, I don't know if Jack Cohn kind of meshes with what I think Notre Dame sees itself trying to be. And I, I don't know if I, I I think he might start the season as a starter, but I think if you're a Notre Dame, I think if you're a Notre Dame fan, you're hoping Buckner it plays so well this spring and the summer and fall that at some point he takes that job over. But so that that's going to be interesting to me. But I also think you you touched on it a bit too, Chip. The receiver position, yes, they've got Kyron Williams back. Yes, they've got Michael Meyer back. They've got their tight ends, their big behemoths. But somebody needs to emerge on that offense as an outside perimeter threat down the field. Until they have that, it's going to be very difficult for them to really, truly compete with the best, you know, programs in the country. So will somebody emerge there finally this year? They thought they had that last year with uh, Kevin Austin. He got hurt and now may hopefully he's healthy. He's able to stay on the field this year and become that guy because somebody needs to step up and take on that role. If this Notre Dame offense, especially without Ian Book, is to going to really take that step forward. I, I think Tom hit on something pretty important here w- with the lack of the outside receiver threat. Um, and when you look at, at Bill's returning production numbers, like, look, the, the projection systems are always going to be better than the humans working without the numbers, right? But the optimal strategy is to use the numbers and then, you know, make some human adjustments that you know make logical sense. And one of the ones that I would make for this team is that I would discount the production lost from the receiver position. Because the guys that they lost primarily were dudes who were backups entering the season, right? Not only the, the Tom, to Tom's point, Kevin Austin, right, who who they certainly missed quite a bit, and, and Kevin you know, physically is is pretty freaky. They also were missing Braden Lindsay, Braden Lindsay who, yeah. who played. I mean, Lindsay and Kevin Austin combined for seven, eight catches on the year. I mean, they were probably expecting both those guys to be 35, 45 catch players apiece. So that was a significant blow to the Irish. And it's something that you know, I know we talked about. I'm sure you guys did too at, at CBS. Look, when it comes for, for them to play a really, really elite team, they don't have it. And it's not to say they didn't recruit it, but they don't have it on the field at the minute because their two guys they were counting on were hurt. So that, that's kind of the first point I would make. I think there's a reason for optimism with this team based on you know, some explosiveness returning there on the outside, or at least some assumed explosiveness. They're not exactly you know, proven studs. We think they're pretty good. They were going to start for the Irish, you know, before they got hurt. The other thing I would point to here that, that I think could help them avoid a massive drop-off is let, let's take a look at, at their, their win expectancy from their games last year. They didn't just go, you know, like they, they, they didn't just win or lose just two games. They were completely dominant against everybody for the most part who was not Clemson or Alabama. Right, eighty-three percent over Duke, one hundred percent USF, ninety-nine percent Florida State, one hundred percent Pitt, one hundred percent Georgia Tech, ninety-seven Boston College, ninety-nine UNC, ninety-nine Syracuse. Now, Louisville was weird. I'll grant you that they the wind was blowing so bad that day they couldn't throw the ball, and I think Brian Kelly just said, "Screw it, like 
we're just going to run and, and, and win this thing. I don't think he thought they would win 12-7, but... <laughs> that, oh, no, that was did. 1916, baby. Like, that was football from another era. Yeah. Like, I, no, was, I, was, was, I was waiting like for you. One for five in the red zone that day. What was, what was the win expectancy then? Because I can tell you watching it, I never thought Louisville was going to win. The score suggested right. that Louisville was in that game, and I don't know if once I really thought the cards were going to do anything. I thought the only chance was if, like, some of these throws were hitting the goalpost, right? Like, like the, the wind was so crazy. This is kind of weird. Like, there could be some strange things happen due to the wind. I, but my, my overarching point here is, like, let's say that, that Notre Dame does drop down. You know, last year, it, the metrics saw them as a, you know, the 16th best team in the country. The, the rankings saw them, you know, far higher. Let's say they still play as a top 25 level team or even a top 15 level team, perhaps. The thing is, like, if they drop down some, they're still going to be a pretty significant favorite in almost all their games. So, like, yes, you'll still lose to the Clemsons or Bamas if, if you meet them, most likely, given how much you lost off last year's roster. But I, I don't think that the gap is narrowed that much against the other teams on the Irish's schedule. And I'm interested to see if they can answer some of those questions in spring uh, that Tom brought up. But I, I, I still have fairly high hopes for this football team. Yeah, because honestly, if you look at their schedule right now, Based on what we know, it's I don't know what game right now they wouldn't be favored in. Like maybe in the opener against Florida State on the road, but I have no. To think I, I still think be they'll be favored. There. If if you give me Notre Dame as a dog, I'm I'm unloading on that. Maybe Wisconsin at Soldier Field. That would be a game where they're not favored, but they is get that early us, in the year? Yeah, that's in the end of September. Yeah, gets, I would have Wisconsin as a favorite over Notre Dame at this point, just yeah. in my head. They get Cincinnati at home, so they should be favored there. They get USC at home, probably favored. North Carolina at home, they're probably favored. Other than that, everything else looks like they're clearly favored against other opponents. I mean, this team plays to its potential. I, I think, you know, it doesn't have like a five and seven, six and six type floor. It probably has like an eight and four type floor and, you know, a 10 and two, 11 and one type ceiling in, in, within that range. The Cincinnati Bearcats were undefeated. They had it rolling. They were left out. They were snubbed. They got no love from the selection committee. And they, they played Georgia pretty tight all the way down to the end, ended up taking their only loss on the season. 6-0 and in AAC play, 9-1 and overall after that Peach Bowl loss to the Bulldogs. And like Luke Fickle has created, uh, through performance and recruiting, a pretty consistent program here. Um, now, as we look into spring practice, here's what I'm excited about. So the 2020 recruiting class was like, a new high level for the Bearcats. Like, wow, they're really doing it. They exceeded that with 2021. Now, of course, not everybody from 2021 recruiting class is going to be uh, a factor here in the uh, here in the spring practice. But the idea being, some of these uh, younger players, you know, are, who are we going to see that might be able to surprise us? Who's going to be the new name? Because this is a group that brings back uh, a lot of players uh, at key positions from last year's team. Only seven starters on the defensive side of the ball, but the the big changeover, you lose Marcus Freeman, as we mentioned, to Notre Dame. Mike Tressel takes over as the new defensive coordinator. They had one of the best secondaries in the country. They've got some key pieces to replace there. All of that's important. The defensive line depth is really, really good right now. They also welcome in a transfer from Virginia. I mean, I'm counting, like if we're going to look at the defensive line, if you go Sanders, Van, Brooks, Brown, Taylor, uh, Walnut Hills from Virginia, 
you know, you've got uh, Jawan Briggs. Like, there's a lot of options. You can fill out a two deep, and I'm not really sure what the order is, but seeing how Mike Tressel, like, what his scheme even is going to be and uh, how that uses the defensive line is all very interesting. And, of course, Luke Fickle, with his own background, I'm sure is still going to want to have his fingerprints on that. Desmond Ritter's still here, all right? I can give you a three or four game sample size if I cherry pick games and just show you the statistics. And you're going to think that Desmond Ritter is one of the best quarterbacks in the entire country. But if I have you watch an entire season of Cincinnati football, I don't think you come away with that same expectation. Now he's been banged up and, and he's dealt with injuries and he's played through a lot of injuries. So while Desmond Ritter is not necessarily the, my big question I do have some question about the quarterback depth. Ben Bryant has been a somewhat reliable, not a very high ceiling player, but a a reliable backup for Ritter through the last couple seasons. He has transferred to Eastern Michigan. So when you have a player with a history like Desmond Ritter, I do think you want to make sure that you've got some options. uh, Should he get banged up? Should he miss a series, a quarter, a half, or entire game or games? So the quarterback depth, uh, oh, and then here's another thing from uh, from a notepad right here. Desmond Ritter, uh, I did not necessarily always look at as the like a truly dynamic, uh, like top of the conference passing threat. But I also haven't always been wowed by what they had at wide receiver. They bring back Alec Pierce, Michael Young Jr., uh, Trey Tucker. Jordan Jones, but uh, they had they lost Jayshon Jackson to the transfer portal. So, is the passing attack intimidating? Can they uh, get a full season of health out of Desmond Ritter and the defensive changes? All interesting for a team that will once again, after going six and zero undefeated in AAC play, will begin this season as the favorite betting favorite. I don't know, but I think that you got to call them the favorite to win the AAC. They're my favorite to win the AAC. I, I, I think you look at it, this team, you mentioned Desmond Ritter. I do think that he kind of got off to it. You know, I, I wasn't very high on Ritter in 2019. I thought he got off to a slow start last season, which was kind of just me confirming. I was like, yeah, no, I, I just don't see it. This is a team that's really good defensively. They need a better QB. But I, I feel like from about the Memphis game on, he kind of figured things out and he started playing really well. Like he had four interceptions in their first four games, but then he had, you know, two interceptions in the last six and against Georgia. If you look at his numbers, the numbers weren't great. He only threw for 200 yards. He only averaged 5.6 yards per attempt, but he's doing that against Georgia and he didn't turn the ball over. And that's, I mean, to a good side there, a lot of teams have bad days against that Georgia defense last year. It was one of the best defenses in the country and Cincinnati was in position to win that game. So I look at that situation where it's like their quarterback is not playing particularly great and they're nearly knocking off Georgia in a bowl game. To me, I know it was a loss, but in, in as far as moral victories go, I felt like that was kind of a moral win for Cincinnati going forward and probably a confidence booster for that program going forward and going back into the AAC this year where I do think that they're going to be the best team in the conference. And I really don't like we're going to get to more teams here later from the AAC. But when I'm breaking down the conference, I just have so much more confidence in this Bearcats team and what they have. And on the defensive side, my Jay Sanders and that defensive line and the, the secondary loses some guys, but they're still it was a very well-coached defense, and I know Marcus Freeman has left for Notre Dame, and I think that's not 
not something you can ignore because I think Marcus Freeman's an excellent defensive coordinator, but I do think Luke Fickle's a very good defensive coordinator and understands football. And I think Trestle can come in there and they'll be, you know, they'll be just fine on the defensive side of the ball. So I just see like this team's floor when I look at them compared to what they're playing, like, okay, they've got a couple really difficult non-conference games. They got Indiana and they've got Notre Dame, both on the road. They could lose both those games. They could win both those games. But I, when I look in the conference, I really don't see the team that I'm like, okay, that's where they're going to run into trouble. I feel like this is a team that's probably going to cruise through conference play and is going to reach the conference title game and is going to be that group of five New Year's six team we're talking about all season, barring injuries. I just don't see a whole lot of bad pass for this team in 2021. I think Tom really nailed it there. Uh, to me, what one thing that stands out about Cincinnati is just the the inability for opponents to to block them. Right? They <laughs> they have a, I mean, they just have a different level of player along the defensive line, and they lost some guys, but they returned the majority, you know, of, of those guys. I, I think I think Mike made like thirty something havoc plays alone. Right? And just most teams in that league don't have the offensive line that can handle Cincinnati, and you see it on, on a week-to-week basis. And when you combine that with the fact they're well-coached, that, that obviously produces great results like we've seen. Um, I have a couple questions about, about this team. Number one, do you know what team was dead last in the country in Havoc rate allowed? Was Havoc? It Cincy? Yeah. Like, does that surprise you? It surprises me yeah, a little bit. Like, it does. Yeah, I mean, 18.3% Havoc rate allowed. That's... That's a cause for concern. That could be potentially a, an indicator that things weren't quite as good offensively as, as they looked you know, on the scoreboard. Certainly their defense gave them some tremendous field position in, in a lot of their games you know, on the year. Um, I also am a little bit concerned about their two things. Like I thought their short passing game last year was really nice. They didn't throw the ball deep very well, at least not on a consistent basis. And then offensively, they would hit explosive runs but they, they put themselves behind the chains an awful lot. They were not consistently good at running the football. Like, like their, their median run was not very good, right? It's sort of the uh, 2019 Florida problem where their yards per carry looked great, but then you realize they had a bunch of like 70, 80, 90-yard runs and their consistent carry was not great. So it put them in a lot of, of negative leverage situations you know, on those preceding uh, you know, second and third downs. So – I guess those are my concerns, but ultimately I, I don't have that many concerns for, for this team. I, I think this is going to be another very good team. And, and I I used to really rag on Ritter. I, I didn't think he was worth the damn. And I don't think he's great now, but he's certainly a lot better than I thought he used to be. And Cincinnati fans will scream will scream till their face is blue that the 2019 season, oh, he was hurt all year. You, you don't know. He was playing through injury all year. It's like, yeah, well. One His great. numbers look like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> um, and oh, by the way, backup quarterback wise, their highest rated player in uh, in their their uh, their their twenty twenty class was Evan Prater, quarterback who we had in the top two hundred. So there's certainly talent on that roster behind Ritter. Good note. Um, and just real quick, so for uh, for the listeners, um, let, let, let me play the dummy here. And actually, you know what? Maybe I am the dummy here. Uh, so the Havoc plays are sacks, quarterback hurries, fumbles, and interceptions? Tackles or no hurries? Loss. Tackles for loss? Yeah. Okay. And so the Havoc percentage would be the number of percentage of plays that end with one of those uh, disruptive stats. 
there's also a decent correlation there to to turnovers, right? Like it's hard to predict turnovers, but like they're more likely to come on havoc plays. You want to allow very few havoc plays. Obviously, you don't want to have a whole lot of havoc in your offense. Sure. Uh, and you want to ha- create a lot of them on defense. So defensively, Cincinnati fifth in the country at creating them. So that that tracks. And then yeah, they're very havocy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> fifth in the country defense, and then you said dead last. Yeah. In offense. In offense. Goodness gracious. Well, we've given uh, y'all uh, a lot of heads up. Whenever there's uh, there's something juicy on all things covered, uh, our our friends in the CBS Sports Podcast Network, all things covered, hosted by Patrick Peterson and Bryant McFadden. Uh, Patrick Peterson and BMAC, they've got J.C. Horn uh, on the show this week, and it's a very interesting conversation. Uh, there are a few details that I think our listeners would love, including what it was like in the recruiting process. Now, J.C. Horn originally committed to Tennessee. Then when Butch Jones got fired, you know, everything changed for him. Ended up at South Carolina. He had to step in as a starter, as a freshman. And that, you know, that third game of his career, starting as a freshman, boy, there's a there's a real welcome to the SEC kind of moment. Uh, he's discusses the uh, the draft process, deciding to opt out in the season. He says a lot of people don't realize it had to do with family health issues due to COVID. He explains that and more with Pat and BMAC. Again, it is all things covered with Patrick Peterson and Brian McFadden, former South Carolina cornerback J.C. Horn, a very interesting NFL prospect. His dad, was in the NFL, uh, a lot of good takes from him. So check him out. He thinks he's the best cornerback and best defender in the class. Uh, we will see uh, where he lands. J.C. Horn on all things covered with Patrick Peterson and Brian McFadden. Download it wherever you get your podcast. BYU went 11-1. and one. Anyone, anywhere. Ride it on the headband, baby. Let's go. As we look ahead to Kalani Sataki's uh, group in the upcoming season, there is a lot to replace, and it is not limited to Zach Wilson, who does appear to be on his way to a very high pick in the NFL draft. So, But let's start there. Quarterback, uh, Baylor Romney was the uh, primary backup for Wilson, so he will, uh, he will be considered one of the uh, the top candidates to replace him. Jaron Hall is another name that I would mention. All of this is very significant, especially because uh, here, offensive coordinator Jeff Grimes, he gone, went to Baylor. And it wasn't just him. The offensive line coach went too. And it's not just them. Three key offensive linemen all declared for the NFL draft. Now, Sataki decided that he was going to stay in-house, promoted Aaron Roderick from quarterback coach to offensive coordinator. But as we look at the way that, um, like, have y'all, have y'all seen the Zach Wilson highlights? Well, we all watched him, but it's like, man, he made awesome throws and no one was within 10 yards of him as he made the throw. It's like, man, he rolled out, but nobody was in his face. This offensive line was awesome. And we're losing three NFL players and the offensive line coach and the offensive coordinator. It's not just quarterback. There's a lot to be concerned uh, there for BYU. So where are y'all's thoughts with the Cougars here in spring practice? It's a whole new team. I mean, it's it's. I think it's safe to say you can you can hold this against me if you want. BYU is not going eleven and one this year. Like 
you mentioned all the losses. You're losing Zach Wilson, who might be the second pick in the NFL draft, the way things are going. And I just don't think BYU is a program that is in a condition where they could lose that guy and just expect to keep going at the same rate that they were last year. I think last year's team was a very special BYU team in a special situation with, frankly, a schedule that wasn't the most challenging and certainly not as challenging as the one they're going to face this year so you're losing him you're losing your offensive coordinator you're losing a whole bunch of people on offense and defense we look at Connolly's returning production rankings of the 127 teams that played last year BYU ranks 127th in returning production for 2021 so for me this spring there's there's nowhere not to look as far as trying to like what's interesting to me this spring. Well, let me look at the quarterback situation. Let me look at the offensive line. Let me look at the defensive line. Let me look in the secondary. Let me look on the sidelines at the coaching staffs who are now new coaches in new spots, trying to figure this all out at the same time. This is like a spring mixer more than a spring practice to me where everybody's going to be getting to know each other. And I think that it's going to be really important for this team heading into the summer and fall, because again, they're not going to go 11 and one. That doesn't mean I sit here and I'm saying they're going to go five and seven or four and eight. I still think they're, BYU, they're going to be pretty good. They do. Tom Fornelli says BYU will go five and seven or four and eight. Like, <laughs> yeah. Clip that. Let's go aggregate that. But like they do have, they have a typical, they somewhat, you know, a power five heavy schedule. Like BYU does that. They start with Arizona, then they get Utah and Arizona State. So they're literally opening their season with three Pac-12 teams. They get USF, they get Utah State, Boise State, then they've got Baylor, Washington State, Virginia, Idaho State, Georgia Southern. USC, they pretty they play a more difficult schedule in a typical year than most power or some power five teams do, if we're being honest. So it's going to be a difficult situation for them to maintain the kind of success that they had last year. So I think this is going to be a reset year, but I think that this spring is going to be very important for the Cougars to establish roles and get people into the new offenses, into the new defenses, knowing what their route role is, knowing who's capable of doing what, just figuring all that crap out is what they have to do in what, like 15 practices? So is this your favorite for the team that is likely to have the greatest drop-off in wins for, from last year to this year? Yes. Yeah. I think so, too. Not like to the extent where I would take it over the field, you know, because somebody else may, may do it, but if I had to pick one team, it's probably them. Well, 11 is a high. like Right. Yeah. I exactly. mean, 11 I mean, if, to 4 or 5. They could be okay – and we could have a six-win delta. Like, if, if we look at the last AP poll of the season last year, and it's like, pick the one team in these rankings that you're the most confident won't finish next season in the top 25, it's this team. Yeah, I, I would agree. Um, like, just they... Man, they did so many things well last year. But but I am struck... Remember when we talked about Northwestern and how many guys they were losing to the draft and, and how long it had been since they had multiple first-round picks, but also... You know, just multiple top 100 picks and whatnot. I, I think you have this a similar thing going on here with with BYU. When these teams in G5 teams, and I know BYU is an indie, but in my mind, they're a little more of a G5 than they are P5. Not by like they're a little closer than some are, but when they lose this amount of, of top level talent, top level experience, that normally hurts. When they lose a quarterback, right, who's going to go high in the NFL draft that is almost always a really big deal. And I don't care how much, how much you like, like Baylor Romney. I mean, th the odds that, that they have another Zach Wilson ready to go are very low. Right. Um, not to mention Romney's numbers last year were, were, were not, not great. I mean, 6.4 per, per attempt adjusted 68% you know, completions is fine, but again, not very you know, far downfield. 
Um, and I think that this is a team that is particularly hurt with the rest of the country bringing back so much experience, right? They might be able to go, I don't know, eight and four, nine and three in a given year losing this. But this year, I think it, it makes it more punitive to lose as much as they did. It'll still be a good team, I think. Just I, This could be one of, those, one of those teams that we're betting on in November because they have a, they have a losing record entering the month. And we're like, mm-hmm. they're a little bit better than they thought. You know, it took a little while for them to gel. I'm, I'm back in BYU down the stretch type thing. Maybe they'll get to a bowl. That, that's kind of my read early on. I, I do want to make one amendment. Not top, not top 25, but top teams have finished in the top 15 last year to finish unranked. Because if you look at the bottom of the AP poll last year, you know, you got Buffalo, San Jose State, Ball State. There's a good chance they won't finish ranked either. I thought about that too. When, when I was mentioning all those teams at the beginning, I was like, like I San Jose State, Ball State, you know, there's there's a lot of teams out there that uh Tulsa, you know, we'll uh we'll see. If you again, if you want spring gleaning on your team, put it in the mailbag. We'll put it together in a future mailbag episode. Cover three listeners, baseball season is here. If you want to dominate your fantasy baseball leagues, then you should be listening to Fantasy Baseball Today in five. Stay up to date with all the latest news, waiver wire advice, and pitchers to stream in just five minutes or less. Download and follow anywhere you listen to this podcast. And CBS Sports is your home. Do, 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 cling, 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 cling. As always, to watch DJ, Brooks, Rory, and all the action unfold at Augusta. Whether you're looking to watch on the range, just watching Bryson contort his body at ridiculous speeds as VJ Singh laughs along, featured groups where some of these stellar combinations, I mean, there's some oil and water groups out here. I mean, and just to be able to watch these guys interact together, is going to be fantastic as well as, you know, star power that you're going to want to see and being able to catch them all feature group coverage is fantastic. Amen. Corner. Those three iconic holes, see the entire field come through them. 15 and 16, the risk reward. Come see everyone go through. 16, a.k.a. Rosebud. No par three has more hole-in-ones in Masters history than number 16. There's a camera on it so you can see everyone come through. All four rounds and even the CBS Sports broadcast over the weekend. All that stuff. It's all available on cbssports.com, the CBS Sports mobile app, and Paramount+. Plus. Pimento cheese sandwich not included, but we're working on that for next year. Check it out. Everything you could need from the Masters, you can watch it on cbssports.com, CBS Sports mobile app, and Paramount+. Plus. Coming up on the other side, one of the top names from the coaching carousel decided to stay put. Maybe it's because of everybody else that was staying put. We'll get into that and more next. The perfect combination of versatile athleisure and training apparel has arrived. Thanks to the visionary minds of New Balance, Clutch Athletics, and Rich Paul, the designs reflect the heart of the athlete and the spirit of the community. With rising defensive football stars Will Anderson and Chase Young on the roster, Clutch Athletics brings the best innovative gear to all athletes, giving them style and performance on and off the field. Learn more and purchase Clutch Athletics at NewBalance.com. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? 
Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Billy Napier, hot coaching candidate. You know, his, we had South Carolina open up. We had Auburn open up. You know, Tennessee was looking for a new head coach. But Billy Napier, he has a loaded team. Coming back from a 10-1 season, they were 7-1 in conference play. They finally were able to, to break through uh, in, a, in a big way. This Raging Cajuns team, they've like Levi Lewis is back for his fifth year, but it is just all over the roster. The returning production is fantastic. And so I don't have any personnel questions. Now, I, 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 I'm absolutely willing to be proven wrong. I ran into... Uh, I ran into a couple of paywalls that kept me from getting all the information that I wanted to get, but uh, I still know from my own notes of this team last season and what I know about who is coming back, this is going to be a daggum good football team. So, you know, the the conversation that I was able to gather from some of the media availabilities that the players and the coaches have had is that, you know, they are excited about using this spring to be able to just continue to build. They feel like throughout the summer, they were able to make up some of what they lost during spring practice where they lost spring because of the pandemic. And so now it's almost like rejuvenating them and giving them a fresh start to a season. So all the same names for the most part are in place. A lot of new attitude and new spirit around the group. Got to be exciting. If you're a raging Cajuns fan, what if any kind of questions do we have about this team? here in spring practice. Do they need it? I mean, it's like, like seriously, they have so many guys back from last year's team that I don't know that there's really any positions that will truly be up for grabs, but obviously they need it. You could use it, but this is a team that my only real question going in was, you know, it's not even a spring question. It's just about this team in 2021. Cause Billy Napier's back. I, like you said, Chip, we, he, he was, you know, I don't know how many quote unquote real true offers he had from power five schools, but he was definitely a candidate of interest at a lot of bigger jobs in Louisiana. And he turned them down and you have to think it was partially because he knows what he has coming back this year. Maybe he just didn't like the fits, you know, the people that were offering him the jobs, but this is going to be a really good team in the Sunbelt. And this has to be your favorite in the Sunbelt. And I'm looking at their schedule in 2021 and their very first game of the season is at Texas. Steve Sarkeesian's first game at Texas against a very good Louisiana team that has proven is capable of knocking off big 12 teams just last year. So like, I, I don't think it's insane to think that this Cajuns team with the amount of experience it has can come back, start the year with a win over Texas. And then if Texas goes on to have a good season, suddenly it's got that kind of resume win where maybe it's in like the real conversation for a new year's six spot, which it's always difficult in the Sun Belt because the Sun Belt's just not going to get the kind of, you know, respect from the committee that, you know, that you need to reach that spot. Like we saw last year with coastal coastal kept winning games and coastal was never really ranked all that high by the playoff committee. And they never really took it all that seriously. But if this is a Cajuns team that had the season it had last year and is able to pick up a win against Texas and then run rough shot through the Sun Belt, Like I think it's capable of doing 
maybe it's not that crazy if Cincinnati has a couple losses, if Boise State or the Mountain West champion has a couple losses, that we could see the Cajuns playing a New Year's Six game. And I'm unmuted. Cool. Yeah, there you go. I, I think it's possible, right? I, I, there's so I thought yeah. you went Barton on us. I thought you just <laughs> internet went away. <laughs> oh, man. Um, I, I think it's really possible this team can can take another step. Um, they improved in a lot of areas last year. The, the, the run game was still awesome. The passing game got better. I think most impressively, like they just did not allow big plays through the air. And their entire secondary is back. I think their run defense, which was an area that they dealt with a lot of like injuries and COVID last year along, along the defensive front. I mean, there were weeks where it was like, well, who the hell are these guys starting for them? And yet they still managed you know, to, to win 10 games. Maybe lucky in a couple of those games, but I, I do think this year you know, they should be able to surpass their win total. They also get Jamal Bell back, the, the receiver for, uh, for, for them, who's pretty explosive. He missed a lot of 2020. So I'm, I'm thinking there's a pretty good chance that this team can give Texas a run. Oh like, yeah, I mean like Cajuns plus the points right now. Yeah, and unless they get you know too popular, and, and then I'm gonna have to have to back Sark, I guess. But um, with Billy Napier, it's interesting to me. You know, did um, what kind of offers did he have? But also, like, did he want those jobs? Billy Napier's a guy that's coaching the SEC at a lot of different stops and at Clemson, and you know probably has a pretty good understanding of what jobs are sort of dead end type jobs and, and what jobs have expectations and what jobs will let you bring your like the staff you want to bring and which ones won't Auburn. Um, allegedly, uh, allegedly, allegedly, allegedly being forced into, uh, allegedly. Making- and they end up with Mike Bobo as, as, as their OC. So I'm going to go ahead and allegedly buy that. Uh, given that I, you know, I have questions as to whether Harson actually wanted him to be their OC. Um, you know what? He might just look like an absolute genius. If he waits his way out, two years in a row into the LSU job. It's right down the road. He's recruited the state well, recruits the Southeast extremely well, exciting offense, improved defense, a lot of SEC experience, head coaching experience, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It could happen. So my understanding is that Napier has the notebook. And I say the notebook not to mean a literal notebook, but like how I want every aspect of this building to be run. Like how I want to divide the power, how I want to divide the assignments, uh, how we want to uh, commit our resources. And I mean, that comes from Saban. And if he cannot have that kind of control, then he's not interested because he believes that the notebook is the key to success. And he's had very little uh, experience during his short time at Louisiana to suggest that it is not a way to very quickly level up and improve a football program. So like... Even even the LSU like uh, discussion, if if LSU's administration uh, doesn't give him that kind of opportunity, then he might he might even say no to that one. That's possible. I mean, it's like this. He's a stud. What if what if what if he's waiting out Tuscaloosa? Uh, maybe maybe. Listen. That's a dangerous game. Like, don't you? Do you guys think that what he's doing here at Louisiana is like it's risky to keep trying to to, to stay at this level at a G five? Yes, it your, is. your variance year to year at a G five is greater. It just is. Yeah, I I think that whether it's LSU or somewhere, I feel like if the Cajuns have the kind of season, 
I'm anticipating them having in 2021, I think that he almost kind of has to make the jump somewhere because once they lose all that, because I'm sure they're going to lose a ton off the 2021 team, that's where you kind of enter the G5 roulette where, you know, you cycle back. So I don't think if they go, if they win the conference again and they're in consideration for a New Year's six spot, his star as a G5 coach won't get any higher. I mean, it's already really high. He's already getting interest from SEC jobs. He's, you know, from real legit Power 5 gigs. We've seen coaches, too, at G5s try, try to wait it out too long, and they think that, like, they're building something super sustainable. And they're not always wrong, but sometimes they definitely are wrong. It's like, oh, man, that, that, he could have had this job, he could have had that job, and now he's, he's stuck. Yeah, when we say the, like, rem- – like, remember when so-and-so was a candidate for this job? And then we were talking about three years later, and we're like, wow, that was, that was, a, that was a miss on that one. Yeah, interesting. Uh, Memphis, Ryan Silverfield, year one, uh, tough, 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 uh, as we've mentioned for so many of these first-year coaches. And the thing that is, um, I think, difficult is trying to connect – where we saw Memphis as we got used to it competing for American Athletic Conference championships, and then the kind of resetting our expectations because I I think we saw a little bit of a step back last year, and I don't see a lot of signs that we're just all of a sudden going to bounce right back up. No, it was a good season. They went 5-3 and three in conference play, 8-3 and three overall, and man, they were... They were hurt by the fact that Kenneth Gainwell, one of the best running backs and all-purpose players in the entire country, opted out. Now, Rodriguez Clark ended up leading the team in rushing. Uh, He is back along with Asa Martin, that is of Auburn and Miami fame, I guess you could say, before he arrived with the Tigers. Brady White is gone. They've got Grant Gunnell from Arizona, Peter Parrish from LSU, a couple of transfers that will be competing this spring for that starting job. Defensively, hello, Mike McIntyre. Good to see you again. Didn't have much time to... uh, to put together uh, the the kind of defensive plan, install. We'll see if that side of the ball takes a step forward. This feels like a Memphis program looking at the personnel, taking into consideration, uh, you know, all the moving pieces. It, it seems like the floor is still, I don't know, like the floor is still a bowl game. And, you know, considering all the, the ways that the American Athletic Conference has these teams that are fighting to move up in the pecking order, those teams that we've sort of gotten, like, pinned at the top of the standings, a floor of a bowl game is is pretty good. But I, I, I don't know if this is a season where I'm going in with uh, the kind of expectations that they will be pushing a Cincinnati or otherwise for the conference title. So I don't know where y'all are at with Memphis, but this is a readjust my expectation year because after 12 years of Brady White and the success of Mike Norvell and uh, sort of where Memphis had gotten, where it was almost like double-digit wins, they got a New Year's Six Bowl appearance, I think it's time that we understand that they're not going to be the the dregs of college football that they were a long time ago, but they're also not necessarily going to be New Year's Six. And so we're trying to find that happy medium right now. I'm happy you brought it up because I thought you were just going to glance over Brady White's two decades as a college football quarterback there for a minute. Now, this is, I, this, it's, they're a good team. They're, I don't think they're Cincinnati. I, like I said earlier when we were talking about the Bearcats, I really do think that that Bearcats team is kind of a level above everybody else in that conference this season. 
But I do think Memphis is right there as the team that Cincinnati could be playing in the conference title game. I do think that it's right there with UCF as the number two team, and I think it has that capability. They've they've recruited well with for with you know rankings context within the AAC. I think that they've they've got talent. They're a good team. I think that we're gonna. The interesting thing to me this spring will be the quarterback competition because with Brady White leaving, you've got Grant Cannell coming in, a transfer from Arizona. You have, at you know, Peter Parrish, who was a four-star prospect coming out of high school that they recruited, who is also in the competition, and it's probably going to be a battle between those two, and I think that, you know, Brady White, <laughs> we've made fun of him a lot because he was in college forever, but the truth is, while he wasn't elite, he wasn't great, he was he did what they wanted to do in that Memphis offense. And he did a decent enough job that Memphis was able to win a lot of games. So it's going to be interesting to see if these guys can live up to what Brady White was able to do or if they can improve upon it. Because I do think that if they do want to compete with the Bearcats this year for a conference title, they need they need to improve at the quarterback spot. They need to see somebody take a step forward. And based on what I've seen, and again, this is always that kind of situation where when you've seen a guy compared to with the mystery box guy you haven't seen, you always kind of go to the mystery box because you know what Grant Cannell is. So I feel like Peter Parrish is somebody who maybe could take him there because from what I saw of Grant Cannell at Arizona, I was never truly incredibly impressed by anything. But again, that was Arizona. And as we talked about on the PAC 12 show the other day, wasn't a great situation going on there. So it's hard to know if we should hold that against him. Maybe this is a much better spot for him going forward with his college career. And he could take that step forward. But I think that, like you said, Chip, the floor for this Memphis team is probably four losses, maybe five. If a lot goes wrong, they're going to a bowl game. They're going to be competitive within the conference. I'm interested to see what coach Ryan Silverfield does with Peter Parrish. Right. Like, like Parrish is a player who I remember as a recruit, a lot of schools were looking at as an athlete. Right. But he was a high school quarterback. And then he ended up having a really strong uh, camp season, followed up by a nice senior season in high school, if, if I recall, throwing the football. And it, that combined with his legs, it, he could be a really dynamic playmaker for them at Memphis. If they go with Gunnell, I, I agree with Tom. I, I've not been. You know, super impressed. Um, he was a guy as a recruit who emerged very early. I know a lot of a lot of you know, good coaches were on him early on. Uh, I know Jimbo liked him a whole lot. You know, early on as well, like as a freshman in high school, just based on on seeing him at FSU's camp at the time. But I, I don't think he really improved as a recruit as much as you know, some other kids did on the same timeline. Uh, but they've recruited fairly well for the league, and I, I just think this team is. I think Chip's right. Like eight and four is probably the floor here. I mean, they 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 still have some good playmakers. They have options defensively. I, I thought they actually did some decent things up front. My real key to the season this year for Memphis is avoid the party bus. I mean they <laughs> they missed a whole month. I mean they their game was on what September fifth. Yes. They didn't play again till till October third, and they got their door. You know they they didn't play very well in that game. I think, yeah, go back to Gunnell. He's just somebody that looks like a quarterback because he's big. He's got a big arm, but it's like, oh, yeah, that's that's our quarterback. But, yeah, I, I don't think there's <clears throat> been a whole lot of growth with what he's been able to do with it. But maybe you get him in the right offense, get him with the right coaching, bang, it pops. Maybe he is Brady White because they are similar builds. I think Gunnell's probably got a stronger arm than White did. So I could see why that, could, that alone, even if Peter Parrish doesn't turn out to be anything that's capable of winning the starting job, I can't see Gunnell being an improvement on White. Yeah, I really don't think Brady White was that good. Like, I, I know I, I 
I don't know. I'm just I'm not enamored with Brady White as as a passer. I just I I, I respect my elders, so I would never <laughs> say that on the show. UCF went five and three last year. Good enough to get Josh Heupel the job at Tennessee. <laughs> Six and four overall, and Gus Malzahn arrives to take over this Knights program. Uh, I kind of think that with Dylan Gabriel at quarterback, with Gus Malzahn there, like are, are the Knights going to be? Uh, a favorite in most conference games that they play? I would assume so. Like, I am looking at UCF as a potential bounce-back team, considering that last year's 5-3 and three, uh, conference record, 6-4 and four overall record, is going to be something that can be improved on from a winning percentage. So where are the questions for Gus Malzahn here in year one, spring one, with the Knights? I mean... Thankfully, Gus brings that defensive prowess that he had at Auburn putting together those great defenses because I think UCS defense needs to take a step forward. That was like the one thing from that bowl game against BYU. They just whew, got ripped apart. And I think that needs to take a step forward this year. They, they do lose, I think, quite a bit from that defense. And I think that this is a situation where maybe that's not the worst thing in the world, some new blood stepping in and taking over. But I mean, there's. I think UCF is a talented roster. It's a talented team, and I think that Gus is a good fit for what UCF has on the roster and where they want to go. But I don't think this is a UCF team that's going to win the conference this year. I think that Gus is probably. I, th I think that Dylan Gabriel can work in Gus's offense. I think that Dylan Gabriel. I think in a way, Gus has to let Dylan Gabriel do things that he didn't really let some of his Auburn QBs do. Like, I, I think that he's got to open some stuff up as far as what he wants his offense to be with his quarterback and give Gabriel a little bit more freedom because I do think that he's got an excellent arm, particularly downfield. And I think that that's something that they need to take advantage of for that offense to be at full capacity. So I think that's going to be interesting, seeing how Gabriel fits in Gus's offense this spring and them trying to get, you know, in mesh together and working together there. And I think that's going to be the thing that I'm most focused on as well as just some improvement, particularly on the defensive front. I just did not feel like when I watched UCF last year that there was a whole lot up there that you know they didn't win a whole lot of battles based on what I saw. And I think that they need to start winning battles because the way that that team recruits in relation, you know, with where, where it's located within its conference, within that state, I feel like UCF should have a better defensive front than it had last year. That's just, maybe that's not fair, but that's just how I feel. And I think that I want to see that kind of improvement. I think the key word there, Tom, is should. Yeah. Right? Like UCF fans are going to look back on the Josh Heupel tenure and say, damn, that was a huge missed opportunity. Like we were constantly in the national headlines. We were going 12 and 0 or 11 and 1, 10 and 2. And we didn't recruit the state of Florida for like worth the damn. They should, in theory, be better on the defensive line. But in practice, they didn't sign studs. They didn't they, like they, they weren't landing kids who I don't think they're going to beat out, you know, Miami or Florida State or Florida for anybody anytime soon. And they basically never, ever do. But they should have beaten out kids you know, who liked, you know, Purdue and Minnesota and maybe NC State once in a while or, you know, teams, teams sort of in, in that range. And they simply didn't really not never on, on defense. Um, and so that that's a, a concern. That is continuing. I definitely think UCF will recruit a whole lot better under Gus, and and uh, he'll have some playing time to sell. I I would think because uh, Heupel's recruiting at UCF was was quite disappointing. Um, my concern. I'm gonna go to the other side of the ball if, if I can for a minute. Man, they lose a ton at receiver, right? Like I'm I'm looking at this. 
Marlon Williams is, is, is listed as gone. Trey Nixon, Jacob Harris, and then also o- Otis Anderson, who was kind of that you know running back slash you know slot type. I mean, Marlon Williams caught caught seventy one balls. Jacob Harris caught thirty. Trey Nixon caught caught nineteen. I mean, that's three of their top four receivers who who are gone. That's that's a pretty big deal for for an offense that likes really likes chucking around. So I'm curious as to see you know what this thing will actually look like this year. But I still think this program has a ton of built-in advantages over the rest of the league. And I actually believe that this program's ceiling is higher than Cincinnati's ceiling if they're both operating at peak efficiency. And implied in that, I think, is that you are mining your home region and state's talent to maximum effect, you know, given your, your resources, which UCF has not done. Without a doubt. I mean, Orlando, Florida. Like it's if yeah, yeah, if they're both running hundred percent. UCF is beating Cincinnati in American mm-hmm. Athletic Conference championship games. Right? I mean, they're happy to have Hypo gone. Yeah. Like everybody I talked to. Oh, so. yeah. Oh, that's right. You got the UCF group chat. Yeah. <laughs> Neighborhood group chat just filled with Knights. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, Nitro actually lives uh, right down the street from us. <laughs> Nitro wife babysits. Nitro, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Nitro babysits during the uh, the couples golf tournaments. That's it was a, a friend of mine was was giving my son, you know, who's not quite two years old yet, some UCF branded logo golf balls, and it's like, oh, these are TPX fives. Uh, like these the, these are going to go in Daddy's uh, uh, bag right here, and, and you you have had this you know kind of kind of scrounge Top. bucket over here. We're, we're not hitting these into the street. Balls. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, listen, uh, speaking of programs with some built in advantages, Boise State. Five and zero in conference play. They did take an L uh, in the conference championship game. They end up going five and two overall on the season. Brian Harson, of course, off to Auburn, and Andy Avalos uh, comes after two years of being the Oregon defensive coordinator. He's a former Boise State linebacker, former Boise State assistant, and one thing that is interesting is that uh, from some of the reports I was able to hear, pre-spring practice, early spring practice, media availability. A lot of chatter about a new vibe, new vibe, new vibe, all about the vibes out there. And what that means is uh, loosening up some of the social media restrictions on players, making spring practices more available to the media, making assistance more available to the media, uh, just really big intangible changes that seem to be going on around that Boise program, which as we have touched on uh, on this podcast, remember we were a little bit confused to see the Boise State fan reaction to Brian Harson leaving. You know, I, I, I think highly of Brian Harson as a, as a football coach. He's somebody that I, I consider him a plus value added type football coach, but maybe a little change in leadership, change in voice will, uh, will, you know, have some positive effects on that program. Again, a program that has been performing at a very, very high level. Now, Andy Avalos, former defensive coordinator, of course, he promoted Spencer Danielson, the existing defensive line coach to defensive coordinator, but that's the only defensive coach that still is around. Um, Tim Plough? Plough? I'm not sure. Okay. We get... Listen, I'm, I'm out here just being honest with y'all. This is... <laughs> don't know it, but here's what I know, and this is if... It's P-L-O-U-G-H. Uh, we'll say... Pluff. I'm going to go with Pluff. Pluff. Tim Pluff comes from UC Davis, where at UC Davis, they ran up-tempo, no huddle, very, very prolific passing attack. 
That's not exactly what Boise State's offense has been. So that is very interesting to me, uh, and especially because we've got two capable quarterbacks. Hank Bachmeyer has been very good, got thrown into the fire very early in his his career with some uh, positive response. And then COVID issues forced former USC quarterback Jack Sears into action for the Broncos. He looked good as well. So we've got a new offensive coordinator, new quarterbacks coach, brand new offensive scheme, and two pretty good quarterbacks. I, you know, when we're talking about some of these, uh, you know, interesting quarterback battles across the country, heck, I even wrote a feature on quarterback battles to watch. And I, for, I, I missed this one. I missed it. I think this one's really interesting. So that's probably the the one big standout to me, the new offense, the two quarterbacks who I think uh, might be right there in the mix to run it. And, you know, Andy Avalos, just chill bro, trying to uh, make them the chill bro Broncos. So uh, how are we feeling about Boise State? I, I think the one thing that's most interesting to me is what you brought up with Pluff, like, because we've talked about it with you bring in a defensive coordinator and a lot of the times you see defensive coordinators take over programs and they just kind of want your offense to be, you know, complimentary game management. Don't put my defense in bad positions. So it's interesting to me that Avalos takes the job and then it goes and gets a guy from the FCS level specifically because he does run an up-temple, very pass-heavy kind of offense. And I think that is going to be interesting to see this spring because that is obviously, it's not like Boise was, you know, running 1935 offense but like it's it's still a change in what they had been doing so that's going to be interesting to see see how they can implement that was along with the quarterback competition and see if we could figure out if one of those guys is better suited for this new one i think that means we're probably going to see a more explosive boise offense which i think is a good thing for them and it's going to be interesting to see how Avalos does that with his defense and tries to pair it up and whether he sticks with it because it's like that's the thing with defensive coordinators. If we get into the season and the offense is, you know, putting the defense in a lot of bad positions, like going out there doing really quick three and outs and put the defense right back out there, how long does he stick with it or does he make the change? So that I think is going to be a key thing, but obviously we won't get the answer to that this spring. But I, I, I think this is a Boise State team where – I have far more excitement about it simply because things are different. Like every year going in, whether it was the Peterson era and then the Harson era, you kind of knew what you were getting because it was going to be Boise state. So I think this year it's going to look different. So there's more excitement there, but at the same time, there's also a little bit of trepidation. It's like, well, now there's a change. And it's the program that has been so consistent for so long at this point, when you make that change, can they keep it up? Will there be a step back? So I, I think that as far as the spring is concerned, I'm more interested in the Boise State Broncos this spring than I probably have been in a lot of recent springs. So Mike Leach, Joe Brady, Lane Kiffin, Norm Chow, the best defensive head coaches on the national scale are the ones who eventually let go, or even from the start, in the case of Bob Stoops, and hired an offensive coordinator who really pushed the envelope and who gave them fits. In fact, Stoops is on record of saying that when he was the defensive coordinator of the Gators in the late 90s, I wanted to hire the guy who gave me the most Mm -hmm. trouble, somebody I thought was a real pain in the ass to prepare for, and then I wanted to put that guy with really good players. And Leach at the time was Hal Mummy's OC at Kentucky, and then Stoops hired him away to go to Oklahoma. So I love this idea. Like, this is pretty cool. Now you still have to let the guy operate, right? you know, and like, like it's one thing to hire him. It's another thing to actually let him do his thing. And 
you know, in the game when, when you're already down 10 points, 20 minutes in the game, or are you, are you still letting him go up tempo? But if you hire him and you believe in it and you say, hey, my job as the head coach and as defensive coordinator is to, you know, get stops to be a really great defense, even if we get some short fields or if we have to face 14, 15 possessions a game, I think we can do that because we're Boise State. We're going to have better players than the rest of the league. And so, hell, we'd love to play 20 possessions a game. Cool. Our depth is better than yours. Eventually, our backups will kick the, kick the heck out of, out of your backups, right? I mean, that's – to me, that that all makes sense. I I think the quarterback competition is interesting because Bachmeyer, you know, he was he – was, he had some injury stuff and um, he – he was fine, but he wasn't amazing last year, right? But he also has shown some real flashes of brilliance, and you know, they, they, they get Khalil Shakir back. I think this should be a really good team, and in my opinion, is is the clear favorite in this league. Without a doubt. <clears throat> the Houston Cougars, wrapping things up here, uh, kind of disappointing, but again, Houston is just another team where given the player availability issues, the ups and downs of the season – uh, I don't know. It's it's gonna it's gonna look a little strange. But three and three against conference opponents, three and five overall. Clayton Toon is back, but is Clayton Toon the dude? Um, yeah, we got a couple of options there that might push him for playing time. I think the offensive line last year we saw really missed the likes of Josh Jones and Jared Williams because the offensive line was bad. Um, we are also this year on the defensive side of the ball looking to replace Peyton Turner a three-year starter on that defensive line who was a really, really good player. He is going to be missed. This is the first year after, you know, Dana Holgerson comes and there's the whole red shirting, uh, you know, we're trying to tank and we're trying to reload the roster. Well, th- I mean, this year three, like this is whatever the roster is, is a reflection of you as a head coach. So what are we looking at this spring for uh, a Houston team that has yet to outside of like, very, very specific like blips throughout this these two seasons with Dana Holgerson has yet to really recapture uh, what we believe to be that program ceiling. Yeah, this is like you said, this is Dana's third year at Houston, and I still don't know what the hell Dana's Houston is supposed to be. And some of that was in control, like the whole red shirting stuff, you know, during his first season, but then out of the control last year when they had so many games postponed because of COVID that they had to push back and their entire season was so disrupted. So in a way, this is kind of like year one for the Cougars under Dana Holgerson, where we, maybe we finally get an idea of what the plan is and what the approach is going to be and how things are supposed to work. Cause like their first three games were all postponed last year. They finally get out against Tulane and they, they were surprisingly they played pretty well in that Tulane game, considering all the circumstances. They won the game. They, then they lost. They got crushed by BYU. And I feel like that was kind of a theme. If you look at their wins, they beat Tulane. They beat Navy, which wasn't a great Navy team last year. And they beat up on a bad USF team. But in their losses, they got crushed by BYU. They got crushed by UCF. They got crushed by Cincinnati. They lost close to Memphis. And they lost to Hawaii by two scores in the bowl game. So just based on the results my feeling is there's still quite a bit of work left to be done here for Dana. And I feel like going into this third season, I don't know if the school's going to be approaching it as a year one situation. So I do think that this is a very important spring for them to get things in order, to get things figured out and get the game plan together for what might be their first legitimate season together as head coach and roster. Okay, I found it. Cool. I, I was looking for, looking for this quote. Um, so, Houston President 
Randu Kador, uh, this is back in uh, in 2016. She's on record as saying the winning is defined at University of Houston as 10 and 2. She told faculty and staff at an annual holiday party at her home. I'm reading from an SB Nation article here by Stephen Godfrey. We fire coaches at 8 and 4 at Houston. I mean, that's uh, that's pretty, pretty interesting. Cut and dry. <laughs> yeah, I. This team is so hard for me to read. Yeah, and and they got in a lot of games, but like I, I, something I notice here, just when I'm looking at their sheet, I don't think you could find me any team in the country that played eight games. Four of the games they had a ninety plus percent win expectancy. The other four they were single digits or zero. This is crazy, and it was like. It, it was like ping pong. I mean, 100% against Tulane, 7% against BYU, 89% against Navy, 0% against UCF, 0% Cincinnati, 100% USF, 93% Memphis, zero, or 6% rather against Hawaii. Like, there was nothing, there was no in between. They were either really pretty damn good or just didn't show up. I don't know how to read that. I think tune is fine, but like, is there something else going on there? And I don't want to suggest cultural issues or anything, but like, that is. That's strange, and I don't know, man. I'm having a hard time reading this team as to what this is, and I think this is one of those things that – hell, does this staff even know what they have? Maybe uh, they do. And listen, <clears throat> if there's a coaching change at Houston, would you be surprised? No. Because there's – I don't know what the buyout is, but probably not. I mean, there's too many other – like, not only are there no, like, answers, not only are we uncertain about what we're looking at, but there's not a lot of vertical movement. Like, if – if you don't have your act together, then you're just going to flounder in the middle of this conference. Right? Yeah, and if you look at, like, <clears throat> their schedule this year isn't terrible. So maybe there's a chance for some improvement. because they open, But they open with Texas Tech, and I don't know that they're in a position to win that game, but they get Rice, they get Grambling. They could be 3-0, and not inconceivably going into conference play. So... I don't know. I think it's it's funny. I put them on when we were discussing teams to talk. I sent Houston on the list, and I immediately thought to myself, oh, I shouldn't include included Houston because I literally Because I don't know anything. I did. The hell's going to happen with that team? <laughs> I mean, it's, I, even as I dug around, I found a lot of shrugs. So, I mean, that's, that's kind I, of... Because that's the thing, too. Like, all Houston media has been covering right now is the basketball team, so there's really not a whole lot to fuck on the football team right now either. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it's Dana Holgerson. So he's what, if this flames out or if it jumps or if it spikes or if they continue to ping pong, they will at least be of interest. Uh, that is without a doubt reminder. If your favorite team does not have a spring gleaning, you can put it in the mailbag, put in a request. We'll put in a spring gleaning special segment in a future mailbag episode. We've got the mailbag coming up next. So uh, make sure that you go and drop in a question to the big old bag of mail. You can follow him on Twitter at BudElliott3. You can follow him at Tom Finelli. You can follow me at Chip underscore Patterson. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Thank you.
You can now relive the best moments of the UEFA Champions League 24-7. The UEFA Champions League channel is a new 24-hour streaming channel serving non-stop goals, highlights, and full match replays from the world's most prestigious club competition. Reminisce on your favorite moments, legendary players, and brilliant goals with the UEFA Champions League channel, streaming around the clock on Pluto TV and the CBS Sports app. 